It's Earth Day, so let's talk about it. This time on Pole Hub, we're focusing on the Earth, specifically the most dire environmental risk to the planet and humanity, climate change. We'll start by looking at the idea of getting the U.S. to carbon neutral and what Americans think about it right now. Then we'll talk with Catherine Hayhoe about climate change and faith. She's a Christian climate scientist who's got some very interesting ideas about the intersection of evangelicalism and environmentalism. Finally, Lee's fun fact is all about the changing climate of fast food. Stick around to see how we fit that one into today's theme. And hi, everybody. Welcome to Poll Hub. I'm J.D. Depper. I'm Mary Griffith. And I'm Lee Marengoff. Hey, let's get uh, something out of the way before we uh, go anyplace. Uh, Mary, you've been on the show a lot for a long time since we started. And especially this year with all the, you know, ins and outs of all of our schedules. And so welcome to the show. You're officially the fourth co-host or the first co-host and the rest of us are two, three and four. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And I think you know my answer to that latter comment, Jay. <laughs> but let's jump right in. Happy Earth Day, everybody. As we release this episode of Pole Hub, it is Earth Day. And in honor of this day that we celebrate yearly, um, we're going to raise the question of can the United States get to carbon neutral? So it's, there's a lot to talk about with this topic, um, but let me just quickly run through some numbers because that's what we do here on Pole Hub. Uh, according to Gallup, 53% of Americans uh, think that the environment should be prioritized, even, it could, even if it could curb economic growth. And ever since 2016, Gallup has found that at least half of Americans have this view. According to Pew Research, about two-thirds Thirds of Americans say the federal government is doing too little to reduce the effects of climate change. And in fact, in Pew's latest study, that's March 2022, 67% of Americans say the country should use a mix of fossil fuels and renewable energy sources, with 31% believing the U.S. should phase out the use of oil, coal, and natural gas completely. Um, so what's the problem? Is this really a partisan issue, or is this one of those issues where the devil is really in the details? Well, I think what's interesting in looking at these numbers and looking at what we're trying to accomplish uh, in different parts of the world, and different countries are treating this differently, uh, and there are some partisan differences we'll talk about, but I think what's so interesting in here is that this this, uh, the way this question has been phrased, uh, should we prioritize the environment even if it curbs economic growth? That's been a strong argument for 25 years we've talked about climate change. It's been a very strong argument, uh, I think, from people who do not support the idea of carbon tax and things like that, that getting to carbon neutral shouldn't be at the expense of our economy. That's been a powerful argument that has carried uh, a lot of weight and carried the day, I think, to a large degree, um, not only in the U.S., but in other parts of the world. But this seems to suggest that as we get further and further along and we see the impacts of climate change, seems to suggest that people, at least Americans, in these polls are beginning to uh, change their positions some and side with the idea that even if the economy is going to have to be hurt, we need to do something because time is running out. You know, I, I recall and uh, Barbara Carvalho, our uh, fourth member of the team, um, many, many years ago when she did her PhD dissertation, it did relate to the topic of the so-called trade-off between economic development and environmental protection. And one of the things I think that was interesting in that research, and I think it's been borne out by the research since, 
is that it doesn't have to be a trade-off. Uh, and I think in areas where we've had um, environmental protection, there may be a transition, but there's a whole new industry that's sprung up in recent decades that deal with environmental improvement, uh, and that goes along with jobs. And so I think that, you know, we may have a little bit of a false dichotomy here in that it's always, you know, one or the other. Uh, there may be a transition involved, but, you know, we've had instances where there's been improvements and I, you know, I know my favorite example and I, you know, is the whole smog situation in the 1970s and, you know, and that's gone. I mean, you know, we don't have that issue uh, as visible as, it, you know, was choking out the oxygen. So things have changed uh, and it's, you know, sometimes um, reluctant and, uh, and it may be slow. It may be too slow, uh, given the um, you know the ozone layer and other kinds of issues that are that have um, affected the future of the planet. Uh, but it seems that you know the public is uh, fairly comfortable with moving ahead and protecting the planet. I'm not sure people who are in the coal fossil industry share that. Uh, but this may go ahead slowly and begrudgingly regardless. Well, how much of this do you think is generational? I mean, when we think about that, we talk to our students a lot and there's just, it seems to be this growing interest in environmental issues and environmental policy. Um, I've been at Marist now for more than a decade and it just seems that this has really been at the fore um, in recent years. And I know just anecdotally with my own children and, you know, with younger um, Americans, it really seems like there's more of a, an awareness about environmental issues. So what do you think about that? Yeah, when we work with our students in the newsfeed program and, and in the C2C internship program, uh, Mary, in, in, in working through our social media content and our blog content uh, on, our, on, our, on the marispoll.com site, um, I, I, climate change is the idea, some story about climate change is the most consistent thing that comes forward when topics are, are presented. So I think at least part of that uh, is that they're, they face <laughs> more than we do. Um, and their kids are going to face it even more than they do. And so the the, the surf is coming in, the, the ocean's coming in, right? The, the tide's coming in and, and they face it a lot more severely than we do. I do think, I do want to mention this this question about partisanship though, because one of the surprising things I found when we put together this segment was I, I think that there's been this perception that Republicans are against anything, even mentioning climate change because of a few members, you know, a few members of the Senate and the House over the years who have said some kind of stupid things uh, and the Democrats are for it. Um, but 85% of Democrats and Democratic leaners and 58% of Republicans and Republican leaners uh, said that it is at least somewhat likely a major energy transition will not happen fast enough to prevent severe problems from climate change uh, in, in uh, the Gallup poll. So that's uh, you know huge, I think, that a majority of both think that. And then overall, Democrats, while they're more likely to support moves away from fossil fuels than Republicans, there's still, like this number, 87% of Democrats and 54% of the GOP say government should encourage wind and solar. So I don't think we're really talking past each other here. That was Pew, by the way. Sorry, that was I said Gallup. That was Pew. My bad. You know, it's funny as we're talking. This is somewhat uh, analogous to the whole debate on gun control, where you have lots and lots of people supporting gun control across partisan lines, 
and yet the system sort of stays stuck uh, and uh, and changes only uh, reluctantly. But I do think one of the things that's happening is the whole issue of electric cars. And uh, that seems to be uh, uh, the next way we're going to start to address things. And um, there doesn't seem to be the resistance from the car industry, maybe I'm wrong, but uh, in, in you know, bringing forth to the marketplace that kind of uh, change. Well, it, not resistance. I mean, in fact, you know, Ford and GM and the biggest companies have committed to being entirely electric in a fairly short order. It's customers. Will will Americans, for instance, will they buy electric trucks and cars instead of gas powered? I think that's that's where the rubber hits the road, so to speak. <laughs> and that was a huge theme. Uh, my family and I were at the uh, New York Auto Show. Uh, just last week. And I mean, my goodness, everywhere you went, it was all about electric vehicles. And I have to say, some of them are pretty cool. Um, but I mentioned this at the beginning of the, the segment, and I'll say it again. I think that this really is one of those issues where the devil is in the details. I think that there's a lot more consensus than there is um, division on this topic. So I wanted to talk about climate change in a different way today. We have talked about climate change and public opinion on this podcast over the years uh, quite a bit. Um, but we thought it would be interesting to talk about it from another perspective. And it's another thing we talk about a lot, which is people's religious affiliation and how that affects their politics. So we're bringing the two together. And the reason why is our guest, Catherine Hayhoe, who is the chief scientist at the Nature Conservancy, also a professor of uh, political science at Texas Tech, and the author of Saving Us, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope in Healing in a Divided World. And she's got a really interesting perspective on this. Catherine, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So uh, I'll ask the dumbest question first. What, what does it matter or why should we care about people's religious affiliation and, and um, how they think about or battling climate change? What do the, what the two have to do with one another? Well, science is science. It doesn't matter where you're from or what you believe or even where you are in the universe. The laws of physics still apply. And those laws tell us that when you dig up and burn coal and gas and oil, it produces heat trapping gases that are building up in the atmosphere, wrapping an extra blanket around our planet, causing it to heat up. Where do our values come in? Where does our heart come in as opposed to our head? In deciding what to do about it. To, to borrow an analogy that's been used before, science is like the map. It tells you where, you know, which is left, right, north, south, east, west. But science is like the compass. It guides you and tells you what direction to move in. And so that's where our values come in. And for the majority of people in the United States and around the world, their values are at least partially informed by some sort of belief or faith or religious system. Values of stewardship, values of caring for what um, Christians would call creation, values of loving and caring for others who are less fortunate than us. These are tenets of every major world religion. And these are the reasons why I, as a Christian, care about climate change and, in fact, the reasons why I became a climate scientist in the first place. Catherine, in a recent um, New York Times uh, discussion, you talk about how we are mainly emotional beings. In this discussion over climate change, in this debate, how can emotion, our human emotion, be a double-edged sword? Well, unfortunately, our emotion has really been used to push us apart in recent years. Because the United States is now more politically polarized than it has been any time since the Civil War. 
And we all know how that went down. And because of that, issues like climate change fall right into that gap where people see agreeing with the simple facts that it's real, it's us, it's bad, and we need to fix it, is somehow a statement of political identity. And that immediately connects to our emotions. And then on the other side of the spectrum, we have people who are so paralyzed with fear at the potential impacts of climate change, and they have every reason to be so, I want to be clear, that we're seeing doomerism being preached as a new religion where people are trying to get adherence to doomerism, which says it's too late and there's nothing we can do. Well, here's the thing. If we decide it's too late, it is too late. If we believe we're doomed, we are doomed. Now more than ever, what we need is not more scientific facts. We need hope. And hope is informed by action. Let me toss in a couple of poll numbers since we are, uh, that's what we do, we poll, and a couple of things that st stood out to us. When it comes to climate change, evangelicals in many polls show lower levels of belief in and uh, uh, climate change and support for, for doing something about it. And in our own poll from last October, 48% of evangelicals said U.S. anti-climate change policies go too far. Uh, only Trump supporters at 56% and Republicans at 50% were higher. Um, let me introduce somebody else uh, to ask you the next question that, that kind of relates to this. Ashley Marcinic is, uh, is our producer on the podcast. She's been a student Marist for four years. She's uh, graduating uh, and has been with us this whole time. Uh, she wanted, and we wanted her to be on this podcast because she uh, studied your work in a class. And uh, Ashley, take it away. So one of the main things that we discussed in the class was kind of the overall role that religion plays and kind of um, it's this hierarchy within religion that everything was created for to serve man's purpose and how can that be combated because it stands as such a huge problem as a lot of people feel they're superior which then they feel that there's kind of like free reign over using all of the what's provided by the earth so what could be something to kind of combat that well, that perspective that you cited is one that we hear predominantly in Christian circles. And so I have a simple response to that. They haven't read the Bible. They literally don't know what they claim to believe. Now, let me elaborate on that slightly and on the poll numbers too that you mentioned, Jay. Those are poll numbers for the United States. Why is that important? Because only in the United States is climate denial a apparently religious issue. Is there something in the Bible that makes people say, oh, well, we don't have care over creation. We shouldn't love the poorest and most vulnerable who are being impacted by a changing climate. No, absolutely the opposite. In Genesis 1, it says God gave humans responsibility over every living thing on this planet. That Hebrew word is rada, and elsewhere in the Bible, it is clearly used as being protective, taking care of, looking out for the needs of those who have no voice or no social status. Not dominion over like it is sometimes understood. Exactly. And what, how to be specific, it was translated in the King James Bible. And then at the end of the Bible in Revelation, it says God will destroy those who destroy the earth. So there's a clear sense of human agency and bad choices being made. And then all through the Bible, there is God's love and care for the most seemingly insignificant aspects of creation being demonstrated. And then all through the New Testament, it talks extensively about how we're supposed to be recognized by our love for other people. 
And how loving is it to stick our fingers in our ears and put our hands over our eyes and ignore the suffering that is already happening today as a result of pollution, environmental degradation, biodiversity loss, and climate change right here where we live as well as on the other side of the world. So my answer to that is they just haven't read the Bible. And when I go outside the U.S., and I'm Canadian myself, and I talk to people outside the U.S. in Christian circles who are questioning the reality and severity of climate change, because those people do exist, I ask them, where did you hear that? And just about every single time, if they can remember where they heard it, it came from a U.S. source. So what's the origin of this? The origin of this is solution aversion. I don't want to fix it. But if I say I don't want to fix something that is causing untold suffering around the poorest people in the world, that makes me sound like a bad person. And most of us don't want to feel like a bad person. So instead, we use our brain to engage in motivated reasoning, where we go out and we find excuses, religiously sounding excuses, pious sounding excuses, sciencey sounding excuses to say, oh, it's not real or God's in control or the world's going to end anyways. But those are just window dressing for the real problem, which is I don't want to fix it because I think the solution, the cure is worse than the disease. So Catherine, how do we hold on to the hope? How do we affect change? I truly believe that everybody already has every reason they need to care about climate change and support climate action. We don't have to convert everybody into our image. We don't have to make them care for the same reason we do. We just have to figure out what do they already care about. They might be a military veteran. They might be a parent. They might be a person of faith, or they might not be. They might be a member of the Rotary Club. They might be somebody who enjoys birding or fishing. Whoever they are, and this is based on thousands of conversations I have, and I tell a lot of these stories in my book, Saving Us. Whoever they are, I am convinced that they already have every reason they need to care. And what our job is, all of our jobs, of people who care about climate change and want to spur climate action, our job is to figure out why they already care, help them see why they already care, and then directly address solution aversion by showing them how there are positive, constructive solutions that have benefits today as well as tomorrow that will save us money, clean up our air, invest in the economy, give us safer, more secure homes, jobs, places to live, and ultimately a better world. Because if you just start at what we all have in common, we all want a better world. We all want clean water to come out of the tap when we turn it on. We all want food on the grocery store aisles. We want a safe place to live. We want a safe world to live in and raise our children in. And if we start there and work our way down, then we can start to talk about solutions that will get us to the places we all want to go. Ashley, how about last question? I think the biggest hurdle comes with just being able to open that dialogue. I know one of the um, um, aspects we talk about in environmental policy and politics is this idea of like the six um, America, Americans or the six Americas with um, climate change. And one of them is the dismissive audience where it is one of the hardest things to do is open up that conversation and create that dialogue and create that we we're looking for a solution that helps everyone. So how, especially when it comes to the evangelical population, which, and especially the Christian population, which is such a huge source and group of people, how can that dialogue really get open to show we're on the same page? 
Well, first of all, 8% of us are dismissive. And I define a dismissive person as somebody who if an angel from God with brand new tablets of stone saying global warming is real appeared to them, they still wouldn't change their mind. <laughs> so we can't either. If someone's a dismissive, especially someone in our family, and a lot of us do have family members like that, the best thing to say is, I'm sorry you're wrong, but I love you, so let's talk about something else. But 92% of us are not dismissive. So how can we begin positive, constructive conversations with something we have in common rather than something that divides us, with something we agree on rather than something we dis disagree on? And so, for example, the first time I was asked to speak at a Christian college to give the chapel service, which is very different than giving a science talk, I decided I have to start with what we agree on. So I'm going to start with a statement of faith. I'm going to start with the fact that we agree that God created this amazing universe we live in. We agree that God gave this planet to humans to have responsibility over for every living thing. We agree that we are to be recognized by our love for others. Here are all the things we agree on. And now let's talk about how that makes us the perfect people to care about and act on climate change. Does that work in your experience? Well, it's not just my experience. I've done research. We have looked at what effect this has talking to students at various Christian colleges across the political spectrum. And it turns out that even just a 30 minute talk significantly changes students' opinions. So they all increase to the same level. The most conservative ones change the most. Well, there's your answer, Ashley, right? Go out and as you graduate, go out and, and do that work. That's uh, amazing. Um, Catherine Hayhoe, thank you so much for joining us. It's a, a great way of looking at uh, climate change and our, our debates about it, which so often just get, uh, I think, sliced into partisan differences now, especially in the U.S. And this is such an interesting way of, of talking across some of these partisan differences. So uh, thank you so much for joining us. We'll put all the information uh, about Catherine, including her book and, and everything else. Uh, on our website, I mean, excuse me, in the show notes, the show notes of the podcast. Uh, and uh, we appreciate you being here. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Sometimes we do these, uh, these uh, podcasts uh, before lunch and sometimes after. Uh, but usually lunch for me is heading to the fast food, as those folks who work with me know. And I tend to be very, very rigid in my preferences, but then I switch on to something else. Uh, eventually. Well, it seems that the uh, uh, CBS News had asked in September of uh, 2014, uh, provided for us by our friends at the Gallup uh, Center uh, Archives at, um, at Cornell University. And Rovers the Center Archives. Uh, yes, it's, uh, yeah, it's a Gallup. George, yeah. George appreciates it. Both Georges. <laughs> No, it's a, a, another horse name. Uh, but anyway, uh, so the question was uh, asked by CBS, which one of the following is your favorite fast food restaurant franchise? And they went down the list almost. Uh, Burger King, McDonald's, Wendy's, Hardee's, KFC, Taco Bell, Chicken Filet, and... Chick-fil-A. <laughs> Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A. Obviously, I'm not a customer. Uh, I just I knew I was in trouble, uh, and I, I saw your faces, and I knew it wasn't going to get any better. And then my latest craze, Subway, which, to my delight, was number one, uh, followed by Wendy's and McDonald's. Nope, followed by Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A is number two. Well, I just didn't want to pronounce it again. You didn't want to say it again. Wendy's is three, McDonald's is four. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Well, you know. But then we looked at. But then we looked also at 
revenue. So this is what people say, say their favorites are. But McDonald's is twice as big as the next competitor, which is Starbucks, which isn't on here. It is four times the size of Chick-fil-A. So 17% of the people say Chick-fil-A is their favorite and only 13% say McDonald's, but McDonald's outsells them four to one. What does that say about public opinion polling? I don't know, Mary. It says something to me about preferences. It says to me about preferences and um, uh, literally putting your money where your mouth is in this case. But also, how, how much does it have to do with accessibility to some of these chains? Because some of these chains aren't everywhere. Yeah, and when I switched recently from McDonald's to, to Subway, I've discovered there's a Subway franchise practically around every corner of America. I mean, at least in the Northeast. And um, so I don't go far from uh, where I live to Marist. Uh, I probably have five Subway uh, restaurants to, uh, to pick from along the way. We know where Lee's allegiance or current allegiance is, Jay, but how about you? I don't eat fast food. There's nothing on this list that I have been to in a decade. It's other than Subway, which we, because of Mike Conti, who uh, is our uh, director of client relations and goes to the Subway up in Hyde Park. And so, yes, I do actually uh, glom onto that and say, pick me up a sandwich since he's leaving the building. Uh, but all the other ones I have, I have either never been to or I haven't been to in 20 or 30 years. You can come hang out with my kids because they've um, <laughs> added to my uptick in fast food consumption. But I actually, um, one of my guilty pleasures is a Burger King cheeseburger. I am a fan of Burger King above all other types of fast food burgers. Well, I'm so old that, you know, the way McDonald's says billions and billions sold. Uh, when I was in college way back in the 60s, late 60s, you know, it said like, you know, 12 sold or something or 14 sold. I think I was the initial customer and I, I think I was responsible for the first several million uh, before before it uh, really uh, really took off. I will tell you that some people are, you know, so off center here. My um, late uh, mother-in-law uh, was taken to a McDonald's and ordered a hot dog. That'll do it for Poll Hub this week. Poll Hub is a production of the Maris Poll at Maris College in Poughkeepsie, New York. Mary Griffith is our executive producer. Casey Schaff is our production supervisor. The Poll Hub team includes Ashley Marcinek, Athen Hollis, and Emily Fry. If you enjoy Poll Hub, please consider leaving a review. Positive reviews help other listeners like you find us. If you'd like to learn more about polling and survey science, check out the Maris Poll Academy, our free online learning portal. If you have questions for us, tweet them directly to at Maris Poll. Remember, you can always tell your smart speaker to play Poll Hub and with any luck, it'll cooperate. Finally, wherever you listen to Poll Hub, there is a subscribe button. Click it and the latest episode will be ready for you in your podcasting app as soon as it's released. We'll see you next time.